Welcome to the Who's Left podcast, a show about Indiana politics, history, and culture from the unapologetic perspective of the Hoosier left. My name is Scott Aaron Rogers, and I'm recording from Bloomington. My guest today is Josh Lowry, candidate for Indiana House District 24. This from his website. Quote, Josh was born and raised in Martinsville. He attended IU Bloomington, where he met his future wife, Alexis. He then pursued his childhood dream of becoming a professional wrestler before settling down and attending law school. Josh spent five years as a deputy attorney general practicing constitutional law, where he defended state agencies such as the Department of Child Services and Indiana State Police. Josh has argued in front of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and conducted jury trials. Josh and Alexis moved to Westfield in 2009, where Alexis grew up. Alexis's family has lived in Westfield for generations. Alexis and Josh knew they would want to raise a family in Westfield to be close to family and enjoy the great public schools that Alexis and her siblings had attended. Unfortunately, Josh and Alexis were unable to have children, so they became foster parents. They have fostered 12 kids, five of which they adopted. When not driving one of his children to practice or work, Josh is a competitive natural bodybuilder and plays recreational soccer, end quote. We'll talk about his work as an attorney, his motivation to run for office, driving turnout, standing for what one really believes in, and a little pro wrestling. But first, I need your help. Who's Left is dedicated to calling out Indiana lawmakers, their financial backers, and the networks of people actively working to make our lives worse, those whose policies endanger children, those that sow grief in our homes and communities. I work to highlight these bad actors so we can replace them with more empathetic leadership and also shine the spotlight on the Hoosier activists, organizations, and elected officials who are doing the hard work to build a more just, equitable, and compassionate Indiana. But I can't do this without you. Right now, the only income I bring to my household is from this project. I rely on your financial support from paid subscriptions over at scottaaronrogers.substack.com. For $5 a month or only $50 a year, you can help me push our state in a better direction and help my family in the process. Even if a paid subscription doesn't work for you at this time, you can still help. Subscribe at the free level over on Substack. Set your favorite podcast player to auto-download new episodes of the show. Rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you use. Follow us on social media at facebook.com slash who's left. That's H-O-O-S left. I'm personally at scottrodge78, that's S-C-O-T-T-R-O-G-7-8 on Instagram, threads, and the platform everyone still calls Twitter. And on Mastodon at scottrodge78 at hoosier.social. Most importantly, though, pass on the word. Forward the newsletter to a colleague. Don't just like, but share on social media radicalize your circle of friends. With your investment, a full-time Who's Left looks like new content every day. It looks like full coverage of the 2024 election cycle in Indiana and beyond. And it looks like zooming out to see how the forces at work in our state function nationally, even globally. I do not plan on paywalling any content because I believe in open access to information, and your support helps make that content freely available to all Hoosiers. But I need your investment in order to do this full-time. To those who have contributed already, thank you. You have my undying gratitude. To everybody, thanks for listening. Here's my interview with Josh Lowry. At this time, welcome to the Who's Left podcast. Josh Lowry, Democratic candidate for House District 24 in this November's election here in Indiana. Josh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Appreciate you being here. So um, let's start by introducing you to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about your background. So I'm a, so I'm an attorney, foster parent, and former professional wrestler. Uh, so I actually grew up in Martinsville, went to IU Bloomington, met my wife there. Um, she is from Westfield. And then I did what most sane people do, and I went to try to become a professional wrestler. I went to the Dead <laughs> School at the time. Uh, spent about a year there, ended up moving back, became an attorney, and then about six years ago, my wife and I became foster parents. And that's that's how I define myself. That's the first thing I think of. Uh, and we've you know fostered twelve different kids and adopted five of them, and it's been an absolute blast for us. 
tell me a little bit more about your journey to becoming a foster parent. Yeah, so um, my wife has talked about this pretty openly. When she, she ran for city council last year, Alexis Lowry, and uh, you know, infertility issues like a lot of people. And when we were not able to have children after a certain point, we said, "Okay, let's you know, uh, let's look into this fostering thing." Um, we wanted to adopt kids. Uh, our goal originally had been kind of you know just you know maybe foster a younger set of kids and adopt them. And we kind of fell in love with the process and we just never stopped. We just kept going. Unfortunately, now we actually are literally out of room. We adopted, well, we're finishing the adoption of our fifth, fifth child. I literally had to build a room onto my house, which I had no idea what I was doing. It may fall apart at any point, but <laughs> uh, we're maxed out on space. So it'll, we'll have to take a break on it for a while. And that's just really fostering is just God's work. I, I can't tell you enough what what great stuff that is you're doing there thank you um tell us a little bit more about your work um in the legal field are there any cases that you can think of that that have stood out where where it's changed your opinion or affected your political outlook on on things so well let me let me explain why I guess the attorney background that I have at first. Um, I'm currently a trial attorney, so I do a lot of defense works and medical malpractice type stuff. Uh, my The bulk of my career is actually at the attorney general's office, not this current attorney general. Huh. Um, I actually started under Greg Zeller, who in his, in my interview said, this is a non nonpartisan office. Our yeah. client is the state of Indiana, and I don't care what your politics are. So... I spent a lot of time there doing constitutional law. And I would actually say that the thing maybe it taught me is that a lot of people, when they say, I have a constitutional right to do whatever, they don't actually, like, they just heard someone else say that. (laughs) (laughs) Constitutional right to do that thing that they said. Um, But if, you know, I guess if I did learn anything, and this is, um, it always stuck out in my mind. So sometimes I would have to take, uh, depositions of, you know, people that are suing the state for different reasons. And, uh, one of the shocking things, although it, it shouldn't be shocking and it should have been obvious, but, uh, almost every person that ended up committing some sort of violent or sexual crime had been abused, mm-hmm. you know, violently or sexually as a kid. And I mean, it was like to a T when I had a case and I looked it up, you know, I, I prepared myself for my deposition. You were just like, God, and, and Becoming a foster parent only reinforced that. Yeah. Um, what happens to you as a child stays with you throughout your whole life. So when people don't seem to understand the importance of early childhood, you know, education, development, mental health treatment, all this stuff, like you can make a change when a kid's a kid. Once they grow up, it gets a little bit tougher. And so absolutely between that and foster parent, I mean, that opened my eyes so much. Yeah, it sounds like you're, um, you know, what you're describing is generational trauma. And, um, yeah, what you're doing as a foster is, you know, taking kids who may have experienced trauma, you know, in their, you know, in their original homes. And you're providing, you know, a structure and a loving home where, you know, probably access to mental health support where you can treat those things early like mm-hmm. you said and by the time you know you get teens and young adults and full adults that have experienced that trauma and never been able to process it never received the treatment they need then it becomes like society's problem and not just that individual's yeah. problem right yeah oh man that you, you kind of you hit the the nail on the head one of the things that always drives me nuts is when people want to say, well, why should I care about this? Why should I care about somebody else's kid? Why should I care about somebody else's access to education, mental health, all that stuff? It's like, hey, whether you want it to affect you or not, guess what, buddy? It's going to affect you. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so uh, if you want the best return on investment for your tax dollars, a lot of that going to support kids early on it, that's going to, you're going to see as much benefit to society as it is just to that individual kid. I mean, it just, it, it makes a world of difference. 
So, um, would you say, because yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna build to this and ask you sort of like your motivation for running for the state house? Would you say that um, that is what sort of pushed you in this direction? Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you, it, it it leaned me towards it already, right? So my mom, for the last, I don't know, 25 years, she's been uh, a teacher's assistant for special education class in elementary school. And when you're raised around that, that's kind of, I mean, it, you know, you start to judge other people by how much they are helping other people. <laughs> you know what I mean? My mom yeah. was never talking about who had more money or who had a nicer car or anything like that. It was, she was talking about how much you help other people. So between that and fostering, it, it just kind of was beat into me of like, Hey, helping others means a hell of a lot more than just making money or doing whatever. The thing that like specifically got me to run, got me off the bench was, uh, the Dobbs decision. Yep. I'd actually helped out a lot of, um, on different campaigns, a good friend, Jeremy Elts, that ran for county council. Uh, Mark Hinton had ran for state house. A couple of different Democrats in the area, right? And when the Dobbs decision came down, one of my teenage daughters was crying and saying, I don't understand how they can take away a right. And, and my two oldest daughters are adopted from, they were in Pennsylvania. I don't fully understand how they got there, but so we adopted them from Pennsylvania. They were in the foster system there. And after the abortion ban, it was just like, oh my God, I brought them from a place where Pennsylvania, they had more rights yeah. to state where they have less rights. And it's like, it shouldn't matter what state you live in. Like your rights are your rights. Mm -hmm. And look, you should care about these things, whether it's a family member or not. But I could tell you seeing that hurt and yeah. the pain in my daughters, I had to do something about it because anyone can tell you that has practiced constitutional law. I don't care how they wrote the opinion. There's no way to limit Dobbs to just overturning Roe versus Wade. All, a lot of the rights that we consider constitutional rights were built by the Supreme Court, kind of like a jingle block, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. a right here led to a right there, to a right here, to a right there. You can't just pull one off the bottom. And that's basically what they did with the Dobbs decision. So to me, it, it, it wasn't just, oh, I'm going to, run because I'm upset about abortion being overturned. Mm -hmm. It's an attack on so many rights, so many rights. And we've seen both Alito and MSFL said they want to overturn um, Oberfell. Right. And so I mean, they're just openly saying it. And I just, I couldn't sit back and not do anything about it. It was time to, time to put my, uh, put my money where my mouth, my mouth was, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So like Roe, Obergefell, uh, Griswold, Loving, all the all the important cases in mid twentieth century that granted the, the essentially the right to bodily autonomy in this country. Yeah, all yeah. that rested on rests essentially on the Fourteenth Amendment. Yeah, correct. Yep, and 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 so Dobbs is specifically a attack on the Fourteenth Amendment. Then what what else does that put in jeopardy? I mean, it, it, the the most pressing one is, is Oberfeld, right? That's the one they hit most um, because that's, I mean, that's my, first off, I've never understood that. Like, I don't, I don't understand why anyone even cares who someone else marries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let alone uh, make it illegal. But yeah, contraception, um, it would lead to IVF issues, although we already see that in Alabama, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the bigger concern is that a lot of legislatures, state legislatures, will say, hey, we can do whatever we want now because the Supreme Court's not going to stop us. I think there was a lot, I don't think, I know, there was a lot of legislation over the last 50 or 70 years that once something got struck down and they realized, hey, we're going to get struck down if we do this again or we try something else, that in itself was a defense mechanism. And now you're, you're taking that off the table. You know, they'll go as far as they, they want. Yeah. And here in Indiana, for example, um, 
our state legislature can essentially do whatever they want, right? They've got a, a supermajority in the House, in the Senate. They've got the governor's office. Um, there, there's really no way for elected Democrats to stand up to the supermajority. So um, short of electing you and a whole slate of Democrats, uh, yeah. what what can Hoosiers do? I mean, you got to, there has to be pressure applied. And that is obviously, you know, the protests, the rallies, all that that we can do. But the voting is the, our strongest defense mechanism. Yes. And it's not even, look, I wish tomorrow we could vote in a majority of Democrats in the House and the Senate and the governor's race. Mm -hmm. We're working and I think we will get there, but it's, it's not going to happen overnight, right? The fear of losing re-election can cause a lot of people to stop doing crazy stuff. Yeah. So if some of these, I was going to say guys, and I'm going to be like, oh, I don't want to limit it. And you're like, no, that's usually the guys there. That's it's usually going to take us. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the reasons they do this stuff is there's been no repercussions for it. Right. If all of a sudden somebody that votes for one of these crazy bills got voted out of office, then a lot of the others would be like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this stuff anymore because that's going to come back to cost me my job. And until they start seeing some repercussions, it's not going to happen. So I, I think some people feel like, well, what's the point? We can't win the majority yet anyway. It, it's not just that. It's people get pulled to the middle when they have to be. Right. right. So we need to let them see that there are electoral repercussions from this stuff for them to stop. Right. And far too many Republican legislators in the state um, don't face challenges in the general yeah. election. They run unopposed. They don't have any fear of being voted yeah. out of office and they can be as extreme as they want. And that's why it's important for folks like yourself to run for office, even against uh, the odds. Now, your district, uh, House District 24, um, typically a Republican-leaning district, yes? Was. Was? Was. You had a, uh, so, so the, 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 the current representative uh, for your district is not running for re-election. This will be an open race in November, correct? Correct, yep. And, and she is a Republican. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, describe District 24. Uh, a little bit for us. So you're in you're in Westfield. Does that cover all of Westfield? Yes. Part of Westfield? I I have most of Westfield, um, all of Sheridan, a sliver of Boone County. Uh, it doesn't really go all the way into like when people hear Zionsville, they they think about like the downtown. It doesn't go that far. Mm -hmm. And then I actually have the western portion of Carmel. Hmm. So the reason I say was is not just I'm trying to psych myself <laughs> into a positive outcome. This last year in municipals, there were three city council seats that were, those districts are within my house, District 24. The portion of Boone County, Tim McEldry, the Democrat, won. The portion in Carmel, Anita Joshi, the Democrat, won. The portion in Westville, my wife, Alexis, only lost by 23 votes from being the first Democrat elected to Westville. It's a lot closer. The other thing is, I'll bet you've heard this a million times, and I'll bet every Democrat listening has heard this. We have way more voters than votes. There are a lot of Democrats that just don't go vote and figuring out where that disconnect is. But I can tell you having, you know, volunteer on several campaigns, you would get to the end and look at your data of the people who said, yes, I'm a Democrat. Yes, I'm going to vote for you. And a huge chunk of them didn't go vote. And almost to a T, when you talk to them afterward, you say, why did you not go vote? You say, well, I didn't think my vote mattered. There's not enough of us. Right. Right. Well, that, you may feel that way for you, but the, when we're getting to the point where there's hundreds of people saying that and thousands of people saying that, I mean, 60% of registered voters did not go and vote in 2022. We have no idea what the actual you know, split of Indiana is because so few people vote. Yeah, we're we're always dismissed as this hopelessly red state, right? Like I'm I'm old enough to remember 2008. I remember Obama winning Indiana, and um, I've heard us described by several people uh, not as a red state, but as a 
purple state with a turnout problem. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's pretty accurate. When you have somebody um, bold and visionary um, that can drive people to the polls, Indiana is capable of going blue. Yeah. And um, Republicans have been super effective, especially since 2010, gerrymandering, voter suppression, all their dirty tricks to convince people, essentially, that, you know, they've drawn their lines so well that it is white of climb to unseat any of these folks. And um, it's understandable, I guess, why people would be disillusioned or would think that their vote doesn't count. But um, with the numbers, I think we can overcome that, right? Yeah. I mean, it, man, you're you're knocking them out of the park today because that, that's one of the things I, I've said. But I think the data agrees with this. The worst effect of the gerrymandering and the voter suppression, it wasn't just the literal effects. It was the behavioral effects. Mm-hmm. People aren't going to vote now because they think we have no chance. Make no mistake about it. There's a whole article in the Indiana Lawyer earlier, I think it was last week, about how poor our voter turnout is. And in the article, they're talking about another voter restriction that they're trying yeah. to put on to make it yeah. for college kids to vote. This General Assembly, most of the people there, not all of them, uh, but most of the people want less people to vote because yeah. they know they have a floor that shows up uh, no matter what. They got a group of people that's going to show up no matter what. And as long as they keep it minimized to that, that keeps them in office. So what we're doing as a campaign and what a lot of us Democrats have to do this year, it's, it's more than just campaigning to convince someone who's going to vote to vote for you. It's convincing people that would vote for you, but don't go vote. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's almost like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of psychological abuse by the Republican yeah. Party in this state. You know, they, they, they tell us, you don't matter. You don't count. What you want doesn't matter. It doesn't count. We're going to do whatever we want. You can't change us. Stay at home. Shut up and like it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're going to keep doing it until there's electoral repercussions. Until right. someone gets pulled out of office that didn't think they were going to get voted out of office. They're going to keep going. And and you nailed it. Like, they're, they know their positions are unpopular. So they mm. have to resort to things like voter suppression and gerrymandering to keep themselves uh, from a legitimate challenge. And if they know yeah. they're unpopular and we know they're unpopular, something's got to give. Right. Yeah. So I want to talk about the Republicans in your district a little bit here. Um, in District 24, there are two Republicans running in the primary, right? Yes. So this is this is an open race. Um yep. and one of them is former Colts punter Hunter Smith. Um yep. given the name recognition, you gotta figure he's the favorite and the person you were most likely to face in November. Hmm. I, I would assume. Yeah. I'll be honest, I'm not very tuned into the internal workings of our Republican Party, but that would be my guess, yeah. Fair enough. Um Let's just assume that that he comes out of the primary. Um, Cute story. You know, everybody in central Indiana is a Colts fan. They probably remember him fondly. He was on the teams that were really good during the Manning years, etc. Why should Hoosiers be wary of that sort of nostalgia when when looking at uh, a Republican candidate like Hunter Smith? (sighs) So, look, I, I'll be honest, I don't know Hunter personally, so I don't, I don't want to try to speak ill of him, but I will say, in general, when we're talking about someone with the policies that he has been promoting, right, that he's openly said, I want. Mm-hmm. Just because someone is nice and smiles as they take away your rights yeah. doesn't mean they didn't take away your rights. Here in House District 24, we have some of the best schools, not just like in the state, but in the nation. Sheridan schools are amazing. Carmel schools are amazing. Westfield schools, Zionsville schools, amazing. And yet the number one thing 
this General Assembly seems to want to do, and my understanding is both of my potential opponents, uh, is defund them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's no other way to explain a voucher system other than defunding public schools. And, you know, I, it's almost like they have to find a boogeyman to attack, and for some reason mm -hmm. they decided, you know, hey, let's go after the thing that government has probably done the best at <laughs> over the last, you know what I mean? It's educating people. Right. I went every day of my life to public school. All five of my kids go to public schools. Our public schools are great. It's so just because a candidate might smile and might be likable, that doesn't change the fact that they want you to have less rights than you had, that they want you to no longer have the quality public schools that you had, or that they want to force their views on you. And so I think that that is the key. Sure, name recognition, okay, fine. But at the end of the day, that's my job to tell a story of the difference between the two of us. Yeah, if um, you know, if somebody smiles and shakes your hand and acts nice, uh, and then you know, behind your back is acting against your best interests, are they really nice? Right? Yeah. Um, you've done a really good job getting out the message about your campaign. I see your stuff on Instagram and TikTok all the time. Um, Tell us a little bit about like your digital strategy and 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 how that's working. You know the response. Uh, you're getting a lot of feedback. Uh, you know how's that how's that going for you? It's going well. Um, for me, the idea for me is kind of twofold. One, I want Democrats all around the state mm -hmm. to know that there is a positive and optimistic vision for what we can achieve, and help rally everyone around that. Um, I'm not the only person doing this. You know, there are a lot of people in the general assembly are already elected that could do just as good of a job. They're just elected. So they, they got, mm. they have stuff to do during the day. The other thing is look at the end of the day, an election is, is about how many votes you get and talking to the voters. And traditionally the way you talk to voters was you knocked on their door, talk to them and then you send them a bunch of mail. Right. All right. But everything about our lives has changed over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't our strategy? Most people, and I'm as guilty as this as anyone, right? I got some free time. I'm pulling my phone open, scrolling through social media. Yep. If that's where voters are going to hear from candidates, then that's where we need to go to talk to them. Um, I'm aware that like, you can't look at like the number of followers you have and say, oh, look how many people follow me. I know I'm going to win an election. But we are able to see some of this percentage that, hey, actually quite a few of these people are in my district. And this is effectively my chance to communicate to them on an almost daily basis. I mean, that's to me a, a very efficient form of door knocking. Yeah, yeah. You can knock on, you know, thousands of doors at once that way, right? Yeah. Are you concerned? There's a lot of talk, especially at the national level, about TikTok as uh, like a national security threat. Do you find yourself concerned about that at all, using TikTok as a, as a campaign strategy? No, I really don't. I like, I understand the possible risks, but um, I've not seen enough that would warrant me to stop doing it. Sure. So, you are unopposed, right? You you do not have a primary opponent Correct. Uh, yeah. in May, so you are already focused on the general. Yes. Tell us um, sort of, let's see, what is it? Almost the end of February here now. What are your next, oh, you know, nine, ten months look like? Probably busy, you know. <laughs> um, Full-time job, five kids, got to, uh, and I got to knock some doors. Uh, but look, it, it, it seriously, to me, the next however many months, nine months, is I just want to go and talk to as many voters as yeah. I can. Because here's yeah. here's the thing. I've lived here for 15 years. My wife has lived here her whole life in Westville. This, is just, it, this isn't a MAGA district. I mean, I grew up in Martinsville, <laughs> right? Hey, I, I understand a MAGA district. This is not that. I'm telling you, there's something that there's a disconnect between how people feel, and the ballot box. And I think that we can do something about that. But like I was saying earlier, everything has changed. I think most people need the information or the message to come to them. 
And so that's what I'm going to do. And that's what these next nine months are going to do. I'm not just going to knock doors. I'm going to go to places and talk to people. Uh, I really want to go to different groups and organizations and talk to them about whatever cause it is that they're rallied around. Because look, I, I'm, I'm sure you do too. I know some Republicans that they're Republican because they're Republican, right? That's their number one identifier and their views and causes change depending on what the party does. I don't know any Democrat like that, right? To, to me, the Democrats I know, their top issue is LGBTQ rights. Therefore, they're Democrat. They're union. Therefore, they're Democrat. They're on and on, right? So if that is the reason that causes them to be a Democrat, then I want to go talk to them about that reason. I want them to be heard about the reason that they care about and let them know, look, you may not agree with me on you know X, Y, and Z, but on this issue, I've got your back. And that's why got to start electing Democrats because if one side will do it, the other side won't. And so that's the next nine months, man. It's going to be a lot of talking to people. Yeah. You've been, you've been, uh, you know, hitting the pavement already doing some door knocking. No, it's too cold. Too cold. <laughs> oh, not yet. Uh, we've been doing a lot of going to things and stuff. I'll, I mean, we'll be out. I actually think next weekend is our first time out. So you have been talking to voters. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I just haven't been knocking the doors yet. What um, what are you hearing? What are the people you were talking to concerned about? So for our district, um, I mean, a lot, a lot of times people talk about national issues that you can't really do anything. Mm -hmm. When it comes to our district, I would say number one is the schools. People, and I, I know I said this earlier, but ask my wife. I'm really good at repeating myself. People move to this district for the schools. And so the idea that anything's going to devalue them or mm -hmm. take away from their amazing ability to teach our kids scares people. The problem seems to be is there's a disconnect between people understanding how our schools are funded, how they teach kids, and how these attacks by the General Assembly and the Attorney General and all these people hurts our schools. Yeah. So it's like people are starting to realize there's something wrong, but they don't essentially know why. And so that's that's got to be a big one. I mean, there, there there's no other way to say it. School choice equals defunding public schools. Correct. But not everybody sees that connection. And so that's, again, that's, that's on me as a candidate to make sure that I let people know as I talk to them, look, you got two choices here. One guy wants to defund your schools. He doesn't care if there's a good public school for your kid. The only thing he cares about is there's a public, a private school for his kid. Right. That he wants. And you're going to get, get, get a nice little kickback for sending them to that from the state Republicans, right? How do we convince people that Republicans do not have their best interest at heart when it comes to education? So the, the, the first thing we have to do, and I, I've noticed this over the last several years, helping out on campaigns and my own, we have to stop assuming that the average voter thinks that Republicans are extreme. Mm -hmm. Most people, and I don't mean this in a, in a bad way at all, because this is just life. Most yep. people don't follow, like if you listen to a political podcast and then you go talk to somebody that doesn't, you already, you probably know like 99 times yeah, the things they do, right? They're just not getting in front of them. They're going to look at you, think you're speaking a foreign language. Yeah. And I think that sometimes candidates make the assumption, well, re these Republicans are crazy. So all I have to do is go tell the voters that they're crazy. Clearly, that's not been working. Mm -hmm. I need, and all of us candidates have to, draw a stark contrast. There's two totally different visions Yeah, for Indiana and I truly believe if you went voter by voter, overwhelming majority agree with our side. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen this over and over. How many times do you see a poll and it shows that the Democratic position is has like 70% yeah. of a right? And then, Unlike all the big issues. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well. gun control, abortion, um, yeah, yeah, education. You, take your pick. Name your contentious issue. The more progressive position, yeah, two-thirds, 70% support. Right. And it's just so frustrating that you can't just go out and say, hey, look, you see these things? These are popular. I believe in these things. These guys don't. Elect us. Why isn't that working? Right. I'll tell you what 
what I've seen is it, it's twofold. One, as like, look, everyone lives in their own bubble, and as much as we try to get out of it, we're still victims of you know our, the circle that we're surrounded by. I think for a lot of people, we see somebody vote a certain way, and we say, "Why are you voting against your self-interest?" Mm -hmm. The issue with that is we're deciding which interest they think is their top interest. Yeah. We need to talk to more voters and find out what it is that's making them to decide that vote or making, uh, making them make that decision on that vote. Because you're right on certain issues. You're like, okay, Republicans want this. Democrats want this. Most of the people want the Democrat position. Why did the Democrat win? There's obviously more to it than just that issue. The other thing is in Indiana, Republicans have created this bubble of just not getting blamed for anything. Yeah. If anything happens bad, oh, it's because Joe Biden's the president. You, if you, anything happens good, it's because, oh, we run state government. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was campaigning, knocking doors in Tipton once, and somebody, so for um, anybody on the, any of the viewer, well, I guess they're not viewers of a podcast, any of the listeners, there we go. If any of the listeners don't know, Tipton is 30 miles north of where I am. So we're talking mm -hmm. 60 to 70 miles north of Indianapolis. And I heard people blaming the Democratic mayor of Indianapolis for what was happening in Tipton. There's a whole county in between them. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. That's not even possible, yeah. but they've, they've created this bubble around. And some of it, I think, has to go back to our whole Hoosier hospitality thing. Mm -hmm. Like people, people don't just say, hey, let's be nice to everyone. I really feel like in Indiana, people think just even disagreement is rude. Mm -hmm. So... When, you know, your uncle or your dad or your cousin, whoever it was, started in 2016 talking loud about Trump. Yeah. Trump this, Trump that, right? Everybody around him, even if they disagreed with him, didn't say anything. Mm. And so now if there's five of you in the room that were Democrats, four of you were looking at the other ones going, well, they didn't say anything. They must be a Republican too. And I think that so many people in Indiana have gotten in their in their head that, there's only Republicans. That's all there is. So if if they're able, if anything good happens, it's almost like people have to attribute it to the Republicans because they really think that's all there is. You know? Yeah. yeah. As you've been talking to voters, and obviously like winning elections, politics, all comes down to turnout. It comes down to motivating your side and getting the most people that agree with you out there to the poll. But are you finding success making inroads with conservative or Republican voters? Like, is there something, is there, is there a hook you can get into them? Some, some. So here, here's, there are certain people that have been Republicans their entire life and they will be Republicans till the day they die. Yeah. We may not convince a whole lot of those people to switch their votes. I always, I always bring up in 1980, a month before the election between Reagan and Carter, a third of America said they didn't know who they were going to vote for. And so that's why for so long politics was about convincing those people in the middle. Yeah. Because somebody that was generally a, a Republican could switch to Democrat. There's 33% mm -hmm. middle. They, they can go either way, flip an election. Our lives are entirely built around a silo now. I mean, my phone is going to only put stuff that I might want to buy in front of me. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. So when you have your entire life being siloed, that's the way it's kind of been with politics too. So I think there's probably less of a chance than there has been to flip people before. But in Indiana, that's still even like 60% of the population out. Right. So is there a chance to flip some voters? Sure. I mean, I, I know for a fact, I, I've, you know, I flipped someone, I ran for state senate, my wife flipped some last year. Uh, we know for a fact that some will flip. But there's also a lot of Democratic votes that we're just not even getting. And there's a lot of, you know, independent slash don't really pay attention until the election rolls around that we're not getting. So yes, of course we have to flip some votes, but at the same time, if we take all of our time trying to flip 10 Republicans, that causes 20 Democrats to stay at home. <laughs> that wasn't a very, wasn't a very good play. You, you make a very good observation. This is something that I've argued for, for quite a while is that the, the middle is increasingly disappearing, right? I mean, Republicans are so extreme. It's kind of hard to be, uh, neutral on what they're up to, right? So 
for uh, my entire adult life. It seems like Democrats have been trying to chase dis like this 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 imaginary disaffected Republican. As Republicans keep going, you know, getting more and more extreme, surely these ones here in the middle are going to fall off, right? And we 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 chase them, have very little success. In the meantime, we're you know shifting our message to the right and disillusioning our base. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're saying, no, we got to focus on the base and get those people excited, get them riled up, get them volunteering, get them bringing their own friends to the polls and, 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 and drive enthusiasm that way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's more than that too. Like, here's the thing. My campaign manager, Raleigh Brown, who's awesome. She's, she's, uh, about to graduate from Butler, president of college Dems, a second candidate campaign she's already ran. She said one time to me, it's not as much about policies as it is vibes. Mm -hmm. A candidate is asking you to trust them. Vote for me and I will do what's best for you. But then you're walking on eggshells and trying not to stand for anything. Right. How does that make them want to follow you? Mm-hmm. I think something that people miss, 10%, I think I get this right, 10% of Bernie voters voted for Trump. Yep. The shocking amount of people actually swing from one extreme to the other. That's what I call a Pac-Man voter, right? Like, you know, when you're playing Pac-Man, you got you can you can dip out the one side and you come out all the way on the other one? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a good one. They, yeah, you go you, yeah, you go out the far, you know, the far left as a tanky. You don't, you know, you you come out as a as a as a Nazi on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. That's a good I'm gonna I'm gonna try not to accidentally forget and use that in some speech somewhere and then not give you credit. <laughs> <'Cause I'm> like, <laughs> so I guess my point is it's not just turning out the base. Don't get me wrong. We like I said, we don't even know what our base is at this point. Because they haven't been turning out. It's also about, look, I don't care what names you call me. Call me whatever. Say, oh, your positions are too left. Oh, you're too liberal, whatever. Like, at the end of the day, the voters I talk to will know that I care about them and Hoosiers more than anything. To me, government is to improve people's lives, not to enforce a view of life that I think people should live. And that's the huge difference right now. Like there, to me, there are maybe things I don't agree with, but I don't think that means you make them illegal, <laughs> right? Right. And right. the opposing side right now is kind of like it's far away or the highway. Yeah. yeah. If we're going to say this is a battle for how we live our lives, but then we go about it as, but hey, let's all just work together. Everything will be nice. I mean, like it. I don't understand how a, a voter is going to look at that and see. You know what? I like how calm he is. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. I'll go with it. Yeah. Because that's the man, the ads are going to run against. Things are going to sing it. It's like it called online. And I'm fine with that. That's fine. I signed up for this. But I guess my point is going after that middle for all the time. It, it hasn't been working, one. But two, are you even convincing the people in the middle? Yeah. Because yeah. if your whole thing is I'm not offensive, all right, then what are you for? Yeah. Yeah. People want a fighter. And this is sort of something I've been building toward all week this week as I've I've talked to uh, several folks in politics. And this is something I was talking about with um, Jesse Brown down in Indianapolis the other day. Sure. People want a fighter. They want somebody who's going to stand up and fight on their behalf. Um, Republicans have done a good job making themselves look like fighters, right? I mean, they certainly are belligerent. So they gave the appearance of fighting, and and it's enough, I think, to convince some people that they're fighting for them and not fighting against them. Yeah. So we need to be more aggressive and point out our differences with Republicans and really, really stand for something. You said you get called names and stuff online. They probably call you a socialist or a communist or, you know, deep state or whatever it is they call you. Mm. Um, 
you said, bring it on, right? Like you, you were a professional wrestler for a while, right? You're, you're tough. Yeah. I want to, I want to rewind back to that. Just have a little fun here as we, we, we get toward the end here. Talk about your pro wrestling days. Uh, uh did you, was a heel or a baby face? Well, let me say real quick before. Sure. It's not just that I'm tough and can take it. Um, it's that it's worth it. Yeah. Right. If, if this experience is pleasant and I lose, then I didn't help anyone. If it takes just nine months of getting called every name under the sun, but at the end of the day, I'm able to help someone get their rights back or keep their rights, that is worth it every day. Every day. I'll take that. Call me whatever. If I can, if I can make sure that somewhere out there, there's some kid that this General Assembly wants to bully and want to make a political pawn, and I can help that kid, yeah. call me every name in the book. It's worth it. Love to see that. Love to see it. Sounds like you wrestled as a baby face. <laughs> I did. So here's the thing. I actually suck at acting. I mean, bad. I couldn't, like when we go to cut our promos, I couldn't do it. And so I couldn't be a, a bad guy because it didn't feel natural. Yeah. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know how to be mean to people in the crowd. Cause I was like, well, what if I actually hurt their feelings? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was a, I was a good guy. I think except one match. I had one match where I was a bad guy. New what, was your, uh, what was your persona? Did you have a character? Oh, I was, I was, they called you a white meat baby face. I was just the all American, happy to be there guy. Uh, what, what was funny was where I was training at Ohio Valley wrestling. There were so many people there that had crazy gimmicks. There was a group that they, they were called the mobile homers. They were supposed to be like from trailer park. You had guys from, there was a, a, a oh, what was his name? Brewski. I got a Brewski. I think it was his name. And he carried around this like keg of beer everywhere. <laughs> um, there were so many characters that like by not being a character, I almost stood out. So, uh, yeah, that's a, So if you actually see the, the Netflix, there's a Netflix show about OVW. It's Ohio Valley wrestling. That's where I trained is where that Netflix show is based. Uh, any, uh, any cameo from you in that special? No, oh, no, I haven't seen the inside of a ring in 15 years. So now you said you weren't a very good actor and, 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 and you struggled with the promos, but I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot and see if you can't cut me a, uh, a pro wrestling style promo about your campaign. Give me, give me a little, uh, let me tell you something, brother. Let me tell you something, brother. You know, uh, apparently the reason that whole thing, the brother thing started was Hulk Hogan, who is not the best person we've now found out, but he just couldn't yeah. remember people's names. So we started calling them all brother. <laughs> and then it like made them feel included. Um, you know, what's funny is actually, I, I, do, I do have to tell this is I was worried when I started getting into politics because I remember not being able to cut a promo. I was like, well, then how in the hell am I going to talk in public? Now I'm a trial attorney since then. And so I've talked in jury for the juries, the seventh circuit. And I realized the difference is when I was wrestling, I was trying to say something I didn't believe. Mm -hmm. As a politician, I haven't said a single view that I don't believe. Sometimes it's got me in trouble because they're, they're yeah. you know, some some people want a little more uh, vanilla yeah. of policy positions and stuff. But look, man, I, I, I to me, I go where the science goes when it comes to economics. I mean, we've had 70 years of saying trickle down doesn't work, investing in people does. So I'm not going to beat around the bush on that. When it comes to people's rights, you should have the same rights as anybody else. It doesn't matter what state you live in, what your gender identity is, what your sexual orientation is. And so for me, it's much easier than ever trying to cut a wrestling promo because these are the things I truly believe. And so I'm able to say them because I'm just telling you what I think. <laughs> it, may, it, may not, it may not come together as coherent as it should at times, but hey, we get there eventually. Very good, very good. So... um does that mean we're not going to get a, you know, big puffed up, uh, let me tell you something, brother, about the Josh Lowry campaign? Yeah, that's probably not, probably not going to happen. I might get a, uh, might get a mean text from my campaign manager if I'm out here pulling, trying to cut a wrestling promo. <laughs> there you go. Your campaign manager, you, you were, you were, uh, Jimmy Mouth of the South Heart or you were, uh, yeah. Mr. Fuji. Yes. Oh man. So you watch wrestling clearly. 
it's been a minute, but, uh, you know, I was a child of the 80s. I, you know, I came up on Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Savage. Yeah, man, every everybody watched wrestling in the 80s. Now, granted, there was only, what, three TV channels, so it's kind of hard to do anything else. But it's funny how how pop culture, a reference to wrestling, can be if you name a wrestler from the 80s. Mm-hmm. Versus now, it's, you know, not as... It's actually it's becoming more popular, but still, it it comes and goes. It comes yeah. and goes. It's it, it's it's a professional wrestling, and there's there's good books on this, and I'll link to them in the show notes. But uh, actually, a pretty good microcosm for American politics at large. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. Josh Lowry. Before we get going here, um, let the people know where they can find you. Yeah. So my website is Lowry for Indiana. It's L O W R Y and the word F-O-R, indiana.com. Uh, but if you're on social media, please try to find me. Um, Lowry for Indiana is my handle on all of the accounts. Um, and I think you might hear something and, and see something that you haven't seen from a Democrat in Indiana as much recently. Um, not only am I very vocal about my positions, uh, but we have fun while we're doing it too. And so follow along, vote in November, and just, support some democrats around you because we can win we really can't i mean just the numbers show us we just have to have to get the people there yep we're counting on everybody all right josh lowry thank you so much for joining the who's left podcast i appreciate you thanks for having me once again that was democratic candidate for indiana house district 24 josh lowry some closing thoughts first of all an attorney foster and adoptive parent by the way that is what pro-life looks like. Bodybuilder, soccer player, who leads with caring and empathy and looks like Daniel Craig? I'm a straight dude, but like, swoon. Seriously, our guys out here setting the bar ridiculously high for the rest of us. But I kid. The most important thing I take away from my conversation with Josh is that he understands the concept of generational trauma and its effects on society at large. Verily, Early in the conversation, we talked about violent criminals he took depositions from in his work with the Attorney General's office, and to a T, he said, they had been physically or sexually abused as a child. In the medical field, one would say they had suffered an adverse childhood experience, or ACE. According to a December 2020 piece in Thrive, an online magazine from IU Health, quote, an adverse childhood experience describes the abuse, trauma, or neglect that creates toxic stress in a child's brain, which has been linked with physical illness and mental health conditions as an adult. End quote. Think mental health conditions like anger, irritability, mood swings, inability to connect with others, and difficulty with impulse control, and how those ingredients could easily turn violent. The article continues, quote, Adverse childhood experiences often come from various sources of violence, said Mary Cicerelli, M.D., an internist pediatrician for Riley Children's Health. This could be witnessing or experiencing violence, neglect, or abuse in your home or community, being close to someone who dies by suicide, or being sexually assaulted in childhood, end her quote. Typically, the parents of a child who experience ACEs faced similar abuse or neglect when they were children, too. This effectively creates a vicious cycle that can last generations. And that ends the quote from Thrive. The treatment is to find the root of the trauma, to become aware of the cycle and break it, addressing it through therapy. And almost inevitably, in hypercapitalist America, said treatment is completely inaccessible to those who need it most. The cycle continues, and the violence eventually becomes society's problem. The thing is, conservatives fundamentally do not believe in societal solutions to anything. The wicked stepmother of neoliberalism, Margaret Thatcher, summed it up thusly, quote, There's no such thing as society. There are individual men and women, and there are families, end quote. This continues to serve as conservative gospel. Indiana Republicans embody this ethos, and their 20-year grip on power at the State House amounts to a full generation's worth of psychological abuse perpetuated on the Hoosiers. They dismantle public education to keep us ignorant, force us to breathe dirty air, drink dirty water, 
withhold quality medical care. They trap us in poverty, prevent us from organizing, and foster an environment of pervasive gun violence. They belittle racial, sexual, and gender minorities, say the oppressed deserve the suffering. They refuse to legislate based on the will of the people and use religious and spiritual abuse to sanctify our misery. And, through voter suppression and gerrymandering, make it nearly impossible to break the cycle. And far too many Hoosiers seem to have Stockholm Syndrome. They've developed an emotional bond with our abusers and keep going back to them every two years at the polls. They've been convinced to cheer for the bad guy. And this makes me think of the uh, pro-wrestling portion of our conversation. There's a great, uh, a great book called Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America by Josie Reisman came out last year. While the book is primarily a biography of the disgraced former WWE chairman, it also serves as a valuable window into modern political culture. Reisman describes the concept of kayfabe, a term dating back to pro wrestling's origins in the traveling circus. As the outcomes in professional wrestling matches are predetermined, kayfabe is this concept of maintaining the illusion that everything is real, that it wasn't an act, but a real competition, uh, that wrestlers must keep character in public, and enemies in the ring could not be seen getting chummy outside it. As pro wrestling became mainstream in the 1980s, the illusion that the competition was legitimate faded away. The suspension of disbelief was gone. McMahon, who Reisman describes as, quote, likely the closest thing to a friend Donald Trump has, end quote, reinvented the sport, as it were, in the 1990s with a philosophy she calls neo-kayfabe. She describes it in an interview with Michael Cruz of Politico, quote, You are operating not with the assumption that what you're seeing is real. In fact, you are operating with the very firm belief that what you are seeing is fake. But in that fakeness, a promoter or a wrestler will toss in little bits of seemingly behind-the-scenes truth, what appears to be behind-the-scenes truth, in the context of this wider lie. And that, I think, should hopefully sound familiar to all of us who pay attention to politics these days. End quote. And right, you've heard it. Uh, Democrats and Republicans are the same. They play for the same side. They fight in public and then go to the same cocktail parties, right? And here comes Trump and MAGA Republicans in his image saying the whole process is rigged and amid the torrent of lies is a kernel of truth. But truth is not what's important. The attention is important. The button pushing is important. The emotional reaction is the entire point. In pro wrestling, the good guy is called a face, or a baby face. The bad guy is called a heel. In the modern iteration of pro wrestling that has dominated since the late 90s, and in modern politics for that matter, Reisman says, quote, being the face doesn't pay because you're always going to have another side that reflexively hates you. You're not going to win over the other side. Whereas, if you're a heel, you have one side loving you, and the other side, you're profiting off their hatred. It's the only way to actually make it now, end quote. The MAGA movement has fully embraced this over-the-top, performative style of politics to great effect. So, let me tell you something, brother. If those of us fighting them want to be the cream of the crop, we've all got to understand the game has changed. Democrats far too often seem to be stuck in the 1980s Hulk Hogan, say your prayers, eat your vitamins era. Like I was saying last week about folks wanting a fighter, not wanting a detailed policy plan in response to the bully stealing their lunch money. The people want someone that will stand up for their rights as vociferously as Republicans try to take them away. The template is less Hogan and more Stone Cold Steve Austin, who pounded brews, flipped birds, and told his rich, out-of-touch boss to suck it. I think Josh gets this. He talks about really standing for something, going out there, speaking the truth as you see it, and owning it. In the battle royale of modern politics, there is no room for fear, squishiness, or equivocation. The crowd can tell. When they go low, we go high. No. When they go low, we slap them in a figure four leg lock. If the fight against Republican extremism is as important as we say it is, and remember, they're systemically abusing us, our parents, 
and our children, we cannot be aloof and above the fray. We're going to have to climb in the ring and knock some heads. And that is the bottom line, if you smell what I'm cooking. Thanks for listening. Again, subscribe at scottaaronrogers.substack.com. Follow me at facebook.com slash who's left and on most other social media sites at scottrog78. If you want to reach me, send me a DM on the socials or email me at scottrog78 at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been the Who's Left Podcast. I'm Scott Aaron Rogers. Love each other, Indiana. Indiana.